you can make your way to the, the book of First Timothy. And we're going through this uh, book called First Timothy. We started a few weeks ago. And uh, we actually started this book, this letter, written all these years ago to a young man named Timothy. Around the same time, my son was having his first birthday. Uh, you've probably seen little redhead Jack. He's one now. And uh, a few Saturdays ago, we had his birthday party. And I was given, the night before the birthday party, the all-important task of inflating balloons before the birthday party. That's about the only thing I can be trusted with. Uh, nothing related to decoration. Uh, Ashley would never have me anything to do with that. But I can blow up a balloon. And so I was given these balloons to blow up. And as I was doing that, I was thinking, you know, I blow up a balloon and I tie it and I toss it on the ground and it just falls to the ground. And I remember uh, my kids, whenever uh, they had their birthday party, when I would blow up the balloons, they'd always be just kind of a little bit disappointed with daddy's balloons because they didn't float. And I wish I could have done something about that, but I'm sorry, like I, I just blow up this balloon and it, it will fall to the ground and I, I don't have helium to, to fill these balloons. And so you try to persuade them that the balloon that doesn't float is the better balloon because we could play this game where we hit it up and we try to see how long it can stay in the air. And of course, they just want the helium balloon and they just, that's what they desire. And so uh, I have to be that disappointing dad that can't blow up the balloons right. Now, I was thinking about that imagery of the, the balloon that's, that's always kind of sagging to the ground. It's the slow descent and that game that we would play as children and what I tried to teach my kids, that you always got to hit the balloon into the air. And you reflect on that and the image in your mind, you could almost think of this is the way that often many churches conceive of ministry. That ministry is conceived of this idea that the church and its people Everyone is just kind of always in this state of sagging down to the, to the state of non-activity and it's the job of whoever's up front to get up and do this motivational speech or something that motivates everyone to get excited about the Lord again and it's that hit and we bump it up into the air and then it's not long before we just kind of settle into the routine and, and the thing gets down, it sags to the floor and as a church, well, somebody's got to figure out something to bump them up again and get them up into the air and make things excited and, and so we'll do this big program and people get excited about that and it goes for a little bit and then it fades. Uh, we need to talk about being a cheerful giver and we'll do a big sermon on that and someone will throw in some extra money and it's great and then... The balloon sags down, and, and it's almost like ministry is conceived of this constant, what can we do? What creative thing can we add to the church? What innovation can we bring to the table that will keep people excited? Like, we got to get people excited. You start to think about all the different things churches do. They, they go off the rails trying to think of ways to get their people excited about church. But what if the balloon was just filled with helium. Or to talk about what we're talking about as a church, what if the church was just filled with something that just compelled them on their own to soar with love for God and for the people of God in the church and just desired in and of themselves to serve, 
to be there. The, the excitement was being produced from within rather than from without. That it wasn't the role of somebody to constantly be hitting them up again and again, but that it was the church itself being compelled. What if there was something like that, that the church just was soaring with Love. Now, if you're in 1 Timothy, the good news is, is that Paul, writing to Timothy all these years ago, has a solution for the church. He has some ideas about this, believe it or not, that God intends for his church not to just be manipulated into activity again and again and again, but to have growing and even bursting from within them a motivation that's given by the Lord that compels them to serve the Lord with gladness and to be a part of the church with joy and commitment. Look at, look at chapter 1 of 1 Timothy. We're going to see this. And I'm going to start in kind of the middle of the section because I think this helps us understand the whole section. You could look at verse 5 where Timothy is being told by the Apostle Paul, Timothy is being sent or is being commissioned to stay in Ephesus because he needs to help this hurting church, and we're going to see why it's hurting in a second, but the main thing that he has to tell him in these first few sentences is in verse 5, hear this with me, it says this, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. See, see, Paul has in his mind that there is something that could actually motivate the church to continually and repeatedly rise up to the occasion of serving others in love. He says this is the aim, the goal, the final aim of ministry is love. And so he doesn't say that there is something that we need to do to manipulate activity in order for it to occur. There is something that we can do. There's, there's a goal that we can aim for. And the goal is love that's pouring out from the heart into the lives of the people around them. Friends, this is what we want in our church. This is what we're praying for as a church. That we would be a church characterized by Love that we are motivated because we love God and we love people. That this motivation is spirit wrought. It is not something that we are manipulating. We are not coercing people into a frenzy of activity and convince ourselves that because we're all very active and busy in the church, we're producing good things. We want to say no. The goal is that love grows among us. Now there were issues in this church that Timothy had to deal with. And what we see here is that there were hindrances to this church actually growing in love. There were hindrances that were getting in the way of this church actually meeting its aim. It wasn't producing love in the members of that church. It wasn't growing out of a heartfelt conviction of love for God and people. And so Paul had to correct that, and he's going to tell, tell us some of the issues that were in the way. And so I want to look at this text and see how Paul wants to promote love and what are some of the things he has to deal with. So we're going to start by reading verses 7, or sorry, verses 3 to 7, so follow along with me, and then we're going to look at three uh, problems with the, or not three problems, we're going to look at three points uh, that Paul brings up to help Timothy understand his role in serving this church in Ephesus, and it's going to be so applicable for us this morning. Read with me, starting in verse 3, as I urged you, 
when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that, when you, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So here we encounter the first problem that Timothy is needing to address the problems get in the way of love is this, it's false teachers. And I went back and forth whether I should call this false teachers or false doctrine. Well, they're kind of one in the same problem. The false teachers are promoting a false doctrine. You can see it right there in verse 3 where he says, hey, you got to stay in Ephesus. Why? That you may charge certain persons not to teach a different doctrine. And this isn't Paul saying that there's some kind of little theological point out in left field that needs to be tweaked because these false teachers are wrong. These people, when, are, when Paul says a different doctrine, he is referring to the fundamental doctrines of Christianity, namely the gospel, the way people get saved, the way people are brought into a right relationship with God. And we know that because so much of the rest of 1 Timothy is written in clarifying what the gospel actually is. We see that in chapter 1, verses 12 to 17. We see that in chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, where the gospel is being clarified. And so what Paul is charging Timothy to do is to stay in Ephesus because there are people who are manipulating the gospel. They're changing it. It's a different gospel. It's a different doctrine. This was their initial error that Paul is saying, Timothy, you've got to stay there and you've got to make sure that they're not teaching this stuff. Look at what it says they're doing. It goes in verse 4 there. It says, nor, so not only not teach different doctrine, but verse 4, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Uh, this is a little bit further ahead, actually. Look at verse 7. They desired to be teachers of the law. And that would have referred to the Old Testament. So apparently in this situation that Timothy has found himself in, there are people who desire to be teachers of the law, the Old Testament. They want to take the Old Testament scriptures, but what they're doing is not just teaching what it means. They're not just explaining the text like teachers ought to do. Instead, it says in verse 4, they're devoting themselves to myths, to endless genealogies. And what scholars have said is what probably was happening based on some research on the rabbis, the ancient rabbis, and how they sometimes taught through the Old Testament is they would take a genealogy and maybe you've started reading the Bible in Genesis and then you get to chapter 5 and you get like this guy lived this many years and then he died and he had this kid and this person lived this many years and you just read that and maybe you're going what is the point of all this and sometimes the rabbis would read through this and maybe they were thinking well what is the point of all this and they would get uh, antsy to figure out some sort of meaning and what they would begin to do is develop these myths around all the people who are named in the genealogy and sometimes they'd even if it only mentioned one man they would make up 
uh, his wife, and they'd give him an, or her a name, and then they'd make up a myth about this family, and they had all these fabrications about these Old Testament genealogies, and they'd make up allegorical meanings, like all these names meant something very deep and spiritual. And these people would stand up, they'd open the Old Testament, they would teach with confidence. It says at the end of verse 7 that they were teaching with confidence. They were making confident assertions and they were claiming that the Word of God said this, but what they would actually do is spend all their time talking about myths, about genealogies that did nothing to actually help people understand what God's Word said. This is why they're being told that Timothy has to deal with this. It's a huge problem. There's evidence that these guys were probably high-ranking in the church. They were probably elders. This is why in chapter 3 that Timothy is told, you got to understand what the qualifications for elders and deacons are because there's apparently people in the church who are leading who are not qualified. In other places, they're, they're, they're obviously in a position of teaching. Uh, we know that in Acts 20, which records a scenario that happened about five years before this letter was written, where Paul is standing before the Ephesian elders. is the same guys that are probably being mentioned here. And he speaks to these elders. If you remember in Acts 20, it's kind of his parting words to the uh, church in Ephesus. And he says, all right, men, after I leave, fierce wolves are going to enter the flock. And he even makes it clear, he says, some of these wolves will be from among you. And I just imagine being an elder standing there at the church of Ephesus as Paul says that. And you think, oh, is it going to be me? Because uh, he, he's, he's really bold. Paul just, he's, it's going to be coming from among you. And so now it's almost as if years later, Paul's prediction is coming true. Something wrong with the elders here. Uh, they're, they're, they're claiming to teach the law. They're making confident assertions about the law. And what is actually happening is they're manipulating the text of Scripture to say things. And really, you read the rest of 1 Timothy, uh, Paul will say that these guys are puffed up with conceit. In chapter 6, verse 5, these men think that godliness is a means of gain, and that is financial gain. And so we're beginning to get a picture of these false teachers, which really is representative of all false teachers, is that they're in it not for the glory of God, not for the good of the people, but they have insatiable egos that, that need to be satisfied, and they're using the church to fill that void. And so they get up front and they're doing it maybe for the money, or they're doing it for the praise of men, and they make these confident assertions like they know what they're talking about, but they're really puffed up with conceit. Godliness is a means of gain. They're in it for the money. That's the bottom line. How much am I being paid? These weren't shepherds. These weren't shepherds who loved the flock. This is one of the saddest things you'll see in a church when the people of God who are supposed to be cared for tenderly by a shepherd, which is the picture of what a pastor means. Pastor literally means shepherd. But the person who gets in charge, however that happens, is not a shepherd. He's a wolf. This is the saddest thing you'll see in a church when the leaders go south and they begin doing it for themselves. And they have an ego where they want the praise or they want the money and their appetite is so strong that they're using the people of God to fill their carnal desires. Bilking them out of house and home. 
to get what they want, to satisfy their ego. And it is satanic in the truest sense of the word. And I'm not just making this up because Paul will literally say in chapter 4 verse 1 that these teachers who do this are teaching the doctrines of demons. There's something deeper going on behind the scenes. And friends, isn't that true to this very day that these peoples can sometimes infiltrate churches? They can stand in pulpits. You can see them on your TV at home. And they'll ask you for a nice donation And if you give them a donation, you'll get your prayers answered. They'll go buy their private jet and they'll get their mansion, building their empire on the backs of the poor and the sick and those who are coming to them hoping that if they just can get close enough to this person, they can be healed. I remember reading a a testimony of a man who was, uh, he had cerebral palsy and he was unable to walk and he was through his youth, unable to stand up. He he was in pain. He was confined to a wheelchair. And he got on to these television prosperity preachers. And he began to think that, hey, if I could just be at one of these events, I could be healed. And if I could just get close to that anointed preacher up front, I can get this this thing taken care of and I could be fixed and and I I can get all better. And so he'd go to these things again and again and again, trying to get as close to the front as he could. And he'd sit there willing to give his money, willing to spend the time, willing to get there early and wait outside if necessary, only to again and again to be disappointed that he was not getting healed. And he was so disillusioned for a while, he was close to walking away from the church. And he began to realize that the person up front promising health and wealth and prosperity was a huckster. He wasn't in it for the glory of God. He was in it for the money. He was in it for the fame. He was in it for his own ego. And friends, these types are all around us. And the reason, often, just like Paul says to Timothy, that they're so appealing is because they claim to be teaching the Bible. This is what's happening here. Desiring to be teachers of the law. The law. Which would have meant that these false teachers would have opened up the Old Testament. And they would have read Scripture. And then they would have gone on to preach something that was not aligned with what was actually being taught. But this is what they were doing. And this is what false teachers always do. The reason they're so difficult to spot is because they sometimes give this great lip service for the Word of God when, in fact, they're not actually preaching it. Uh, To name a name, probably the most popular name you all know is Joel Osteen. And to do a little research on this sermon, I went and listened to one of his sermons. And it was amazing to me that he began this way. He had everybody in the entire congregation, 40 plus thousand people gathered in a stadium to hear this man preach. And he had them hold up their Bibles and he had them recite this. Listen to this. He had them all say this. He said, this is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I can do what it says I can do. Today I will be taught the Word of God. I boldly confess. My mind is alert. My heart is receptive. I will never be the same. I am about to receive the incorruptible, indestructible, ever-living Word of God. I will never be the same. Never, never, never. I will never be the same. In Jesus' name, amen. And I go, that's a great way to start your sermon. 
And if he just read a passage of Scripture and went and sat down, I would have said, amen and amen. But what happens after that, unfortunately, is not the gospel. Or not the teaching of God's Word. Not the exposition of the truth. It's something that is self-help, clothed in Christian terminology. It's the power of positive thinking. It has nothing to do with the biblical Jesus. It has nothing to do with the biblical gospel. It doesn't clearly delineate who Jesus is, who God is. It doesn't ever talk about the holiness of God, God's demands upon men. It doesn't call sinners to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. It doesn't shatter the sinner under the law of God only to rebuild them through the gospel of the finished work of Jesus Christ. It does none of that. It only affirms people that God is love. That's about the end of the story. And sure, people go, oh, that's true, and it is true, but that's not the whole truth. So friends, often this is happening in churches, and I only mention that person, Joel Osteen, but they are legion. And it is the strategy of Satan. It is the doctrine of demons. If they can't obliterate the church from the outside, they will infiltrate the church and get on the inside. And they'll infiltrate the ranks of elder or pastor or preacher. And that is one way to cause the church to rot from the inside out. It has been effective throughout history. Satan's strategy is still in play today. You say, well, what was the result of of this kind of teaching in the church? What was was it producing? Look at chapter 1, verse 4. The nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that's by faith. Paul's saying this, this, these teachers, in the way they teach, they're, they're not producing stewardship, which is the idea of ownership of these truths, conviction about these truths. The, I'm a steward of the truths of God. It wasn't producing conviction in that sense. It was producing speculation. In other words, these teachers wouldn't give any answers. It was all more questions, questions, questions. And the teachers would feel pretty good about themselves because they could ask a whole bunch of questions and make people feel kind of dumb that they wouldn't answer all the questions. And the poor people sitting there listening to these confident teachers are growing in speculation but not conviction. Not growing in certainty and faith but growing in uncertainty. This is what's happening in the church in Ephesus, in chapter 4, verse 4, you can look at this. This is very insightful. In chapter 4, verse 4, he's describing the false teacher. Not chapter 4, verse 4. I read that wrong. I think it's 6, verse 4. Yeah, 6, 4. He is puffed up, talking about the false teacher, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Listen to this. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy dissension, slander, evil suspicion, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. This is what's the production of this kind of ministry. It's not, it's not producing faithfulness. It's not producing joy in the Lord. It's certainly not producing love. It is producing dissension. It is producing suspicion. It is producing constant friction. In other words, the church is being used and abused by this false teacher, and they're being hurt, and the sheep are being abused, and what all is being produced out of this is more hurt. 
The ministry is becoming a place where friction is being produced because of the leadership. Other places, Paul says that what's happening here is vain discussion, irreverent babble. So the ministry is now producing love. And so one hindrance to the church as we aim to produce love is false teaching, error. Leaders who use the church or use their relationships in the church to just satisfy themselves, to satisfy their egos with no concern for the truth and for the right teaching of Scripture or the really building up of the body in love. And so to contrast what's happening in the church, he lays out, this is what's happening. This is what the false teachers are producing. But verse 5, here we're going to see the contrast. Look at verse 5. But the aim of our charge is love. So here's our second point. Our first point here, we were saying, is the problem is the church's false teachers. Secondly, is the goal of the ministry is love. The goal of the ministry is love. And so he's saying in verse 5, the aim of our charge is love. The aim. That word in Greek is telos. It is actually the same word or a form of the word that Jesus cried out from the cross when he said, it is finished, to telestai. A form of the word telos. It is the goal. It is the finishing. It is the ultimate final completion of ministry is the production of love. He contrasts that with the production of speculation, the production of friction, the production of dissension, which the false teachers were producing. But what Timothy, the faithful preacher and teacher of God's word, is supposed to do is not produce speculation, but instead to produce love. That's the goal of ministry, to produce love, pure love, good love, proceeding from sincere faith. Now, I want you to hear this. Hear this freshly. His goal in ministry is to produce love in the people he's serving. And the way that he needs to do that is to make sure truth, specifically truth about Jesus, who He is, what He has done, and who we are, and what we need from Him. He needs that truth clarified, repeated, unmuddied by the false teaching of these false teachers. He wants to produce love, follow me, so He needs to protect doctrine. He wants to produce love in the hearts of people, love for each other, love for God. And so he needs to protect truth. Love is the target. And Paul is saying to Timothy that the way we are carried toward love is on the shoulders of divine truth. Isn't it true that we have often put those things almost like they're mutually exclusive? Or or we even see ourselves as one or the other. I'm a truth person. I'm all about doctrine. Truth matters. And sometimes you think of the people who are all about love as being wishy-washy on the truth. Or sometimes you got the people who are big-hearted, loving people who say doctrine just gets in the way. And if we think too much about doctrine, we're not going to be able to love each other. Friends, in the church, we don't need to pick. We don't need to choose sides. Because doctrine is the way That love is kindled in the heart of the believer. It is when we understand truth 
deeply, not just in our heads. I'm not talking about just intellectual, big-brained kind of thing where we only intake, intake, intake truth and doctrine without any outflow of love and care and affection toward others, but to have truth that inflames the heart that leads to love. Doctrine is the kindling for the fires of love in our heart. And if we want to be growing in genuine love toward God and neighbor, we must continually be clarifying the great truths of the gospel. This is why one of my convictions is if I'm standing in this pulpit, at some point we're getting to the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because those truths have world-tilting power, mind-blowing power, heart-changing power as we think about what Christ has done for sinners. It is certainly my experience in this way. I wonder if it's yours. That at some point in your own life, in your own walk with the Lord, it was a truth that came at you with the power of a freight train and just pummeled you and humbled you and just lifted you up with praise to God. I remember encountering for the first time the absolute sovereignty of God. And I always thought that my salvation was all about me and that I was good enough to make good decisions. And that's why I was a Christian because fundamentally I made the good decision and other people who didn't know Christ were making bad decisions. And so I could kind of boast in my own ability to make a good decision to follow Jesus. And then when the doctrines of the sovereignty of God, the grace of God, uh, the doctrine of the total depravity of man uh, in my own heart began to experience that. And the doctrine of Christ coming for me to die for my sins, to stand in my place and to rise again for me and then to stand as my advocate. That was all doctrine. But as that began to take a place in my heart, it began to change me. It, it filled me with love for my Savior and it filled me with love for my fellow man. And I began to think, how can I not serve this Jesus. I remember being at a conference eight years ago and this preacher preached through a text and he probably didn't think it was anything all that powerful, but he preached on pride and he preached on humility. And I remember after that being so utterly wrecked by the truth of my own pride that I left the conference early, bought a book, found a dark parking lot and just repented and repented and repented. I bought a book on humility. I started to read it. Maybe this will help. It was doctrine. I'm sure you have those same experiences. That at some point, the truth just reached into your heart and grabbed a hold. And it began to pull you along in love for God. This is why we preach the gospel. Because the gospel truths, the doctrines of the gospel, are so compelling, so glorious, so transformative. That if we hear them rightly with hearts of faith, that we can't help but be pulled into love of God and of neighbor. Jonathan Edwards would put it this way. He said this, When the truth of the glorious doctrines and promises of the gospel is seen, these doctrines and promises are like so many cords which take hold of the heart and draw it out in love for God and Christ. So if we want to produce love in the hearts of our people, if the aim of our charge is love, Paul is very clear to Timothy, you got to make sure the bad stuff is silenced and you got to make sure the good stuff is presented. And so I'll talk to the non-Christian this morning. And if you've joined us this morning and you happen to not know Christ, the main thing that we believe, that we celebrate and that we sing about is the gospel. 
the truth about Jesus Christ, that God created and owns all of us, that he requires perfect obedience to his law, and that each and every one of us have failed to keep the law of God. And because we have failed, because we have broken God's law, God is righteous and just to punish us for our sins. He is too good and too just to let criminals go unpunished. He will righteously judge the sins of men and women. And we cannot save ourselves. The Bible is very clear that there is nothing you can do to save yourself. But God, in His overflowing and abundant love, sent Jesus Christ to save us. He lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. And he died the death on the cross, bearing our sin and our guilt and our shame. All of it put on him, though he was perfect and though he was innocent. And bearing our shame and sin and guilt, he died as a sacrifice for sin. And he rose again on the third day, proving he was indeed the Son of God. He is resurrected from the dead. And now he is alive, still this very moment. And he invites sinners to repent and come trusting him. And the nanosecond that you put your faith in Jesus Christ and you rest on him, he saves you and forgives you. And he adopts you. Because he's gracious and kind. Not because we're good. So if you haven't believed that, this very moment, you could trust him and be saved and know for certain where you're going forever. So trust in Jesus if you have it. And if you have already trusted in Jesus, rejoice again at this great reality. This is what we will continue to preach. And this is really the fuel for the Christian life. This is the wellspring of love. The aim of all ministry is to produce love. The way we produce love is by continually showing people Jesus. In all the ways the Bible shows us Christ, we repeatedly put him up and we examine him and we can't help in examining him to respond in love for him. And if we love Jesus, we will love our neighbors. And so let's be really practical. Grace Rancho, how are we going to do this? We need to grow in love. And so one of the ways we're going to do that is we're going to keep preaching the gospel. Well, you might say, well, what will it look like if we actually begin to love one another? What will it look like? What will it be like here? Let's think about that for a second. Well, love will express itself first toward God. And so we'll have a love for his word. We'll want to hear it preached. But not only that, we'll want to read it ourselves. We'll want to think about it and meditate on it. Our love toward God will express itself in a passion to pray. So we'll be a praying church. We'll pray corporately. We'll pray one-on-one and we'll pray in small groups and we'll pray privately. Love for God will express itself in love for the church. And so as the the Lord is doing His work and and the gospel is, is refining us and redirecting us, we will love the church more. We will prioritize its gathered time together. We will give ourselves in commitment to one another. Love will show itself in our families and strong marriages and parents caring and discipling their own children and other families coming in to help with that hard task. Love also has very tangible implications. Uh, Two weeks ago, Allie was in a car accident and was hurt and 
jaw was injured and I called, or Tyler I think called me or I called him at some point we talked and I asked, hey, you guys need any, any food? And before I could even offer dinner for them, there were already two people, two families who were planning on bringing dinner for the McGews. I go, that's love. I'm ready to, to serve my family. I'm ready to be there for them. If you haven't heard, Steve Ganey had a stroke last Sunday. And I got that text early in the morning, and I sent it out to a few guys just to get people praying. And before I could make it out there, Mike O'Neill was in his car driving all the way down to the be at his bedside. That's love. It's an expression of love. Why do we do that stuff? It's because we've seen the love of Christ. How he left comfort and came for us. And he didn't remain in heaven in the, in the perfect harmony with his Father, he left the joys of heaven to come to serve the weak and the lowly. And so reflecting on that, we go, how can I love others? Well, I love others like Christ loved me. And so I'll be sacrificial and I'll be available and I'll be committed and I'll be faithful to these people. Love will explode from our hearts and love for our neighbor, even those who don't know the Lord. And that will often mean we evangelize, we tell them about Jesus. It'll mean we're hospitable, we invite them into our lives and maybe even our homes. But this is what the gospel is producing. And so Timothy is told, make sure you clarify the gospel and don't let these false teachers silence it. Make sure the gospel is clear. And look at the kind of love that it produces. Look at verse 5 again. Look at the kind of love. I mean, this, is, this is when helium is filling the balloon. This is when the church is just being filled with the gospel, that love is just causing us to soar. And what kind of love is this? It's love that issues from a pure heart. This is love that has been purified by the gospel, and now it is pure in the sense that it is single-mindedly devoted to God. We are not looking to the world to fulfill our desires. We are looking to Christ. It is a love that comes, it says, from a good conscience. You know what your conscience is? It's the part of you that God has put there in you, almost like an alarm system. It's a self-judging faculty in your mind and heart where you evaluate yourself. And if you do bad things, your conscience will beep, beep, beep. It'll go off and you'll feel the, the, maybe the guilt of having done something wrong. Uh, when you're feeling bad or if you feel remorse or shame after you've sinned, that is your conscience telling you. But he's telling us here about this good conscience. This conscience that is, is not sitting there in a nagging guilt. It's a conscience that feels blameless, first of all, because of what Christ has done for us. That we know we're blameless in Christ. Uh, some theologians have said that in hell... The conscience won't disappear, but it will be awakened, wide awake, completely aware of all its failures, all the shortcomings, and yet never being able to remove them at all. And for all eternity, those will live in a gut-wrenching state of regret and shame as the conscience condemns them forever. Paul's talking about a good conscience, a conscience where we feel that, that in Christ we're, we are walking in obedience 
And we know that the good pleasure of the Lord is upon our lives because we are confident that we're walking in obedience to the Scriptures. Now, we can't do that unless the gospel is true and that Christ enables us to do that. So this is the kind of love that he's saying that the church ought to be growing in. And then he finishes with this third description of the kind of love, a sincere faith. And the word literally in Greek is unhypocritical faith. Genuine faith, sincere faith, no masks on, hiding nothing, deceiving no one, not trying to make yourself look better than everyone else, not a love that's just on the outside and the externals, but a love that is coming deep from within, that's so genuine, it's so real, it's self-motivating that you go out of your comfort zone to help others, not because of what they'll say to you in response and thanking you, or how they'll now look at you because you did that and you're trying to just build your own reputation up. It's sincerely loving the other person that I will serve you, I will go to you, I will love you if you never thank me. Just like Jesus did on the cross where he said, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing to the people who put them there. This is the kind of love that we hope to produce in our church and it'll happen as we protect the gospel and we protect the doctrines of the truth of Jesus Christ. So what is Timothy to do? What is he to do? Here's our third point. We're going to go back up to verse 3. Of course, this entire book is all about what Timothy should do, but we're going to just look at two main things that are are kind of the first order of business in verse 3. He says, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. Just think about that word, remain. Often in the New Testament, it can be translated as abide. Some versions say tarry. The point is he needs to stay there for a while. Remain there at Ephesus so that you may charge. There's another command that Timothy needs to do. He needs to stay. He needs to remain. And he needs to charge persons, not to teach any different doctrine. I think we can summarize what Timothy is called to do is to stay and to teach. To put down roots there for for the time being. And to continually, repeatedly correct what is wrong and proclaim what is true. This actually has a lot of implication for us. And you might think, well, Paul is writing to Timothy, who's kind of a pastor. So maybe this doesn't really apply to me because I'm not really a pastor. But there are principles that we can draw out of this that really do help us. And one of those things is to reflect on this reality that in ministry, there are no quick fixes. He's saying there's a problem in the church in Ephesus. Timothy, remain there. Don't leave when it gets hard. Don't leave when the elders oppose you. Don't leave when everyone wants you out. Go and stay. Remain. Tarry. Friends, ministry, not only for Timothy, but for any of us, which is all of us, as servants of Christ. We are ministers of the gospel. We are here to minister to one another. We are here as ambassadors to our neighbors and our community. And if we want to be effective in ministry, I think we need to think about this, what he's saying here, that ministry in producing love in the hearts of people around us for God and for people, this is a marathon. It is not a sprint. You might get really discouraged that people don't respond to your love and service of them because they don't respond immediately. 
And maybe Timothy was tempted to think that if I go to Ephesus, I'm going to get this done, I'm going to correct some guys, and I'm going to be out of there. He said, no, tarry there. Remain there. Think of ministry in your life, because again, you're all called to serve one another, you're all called to ministry, and think of it more like planting a garden than going and buying plastic plants. One can kind of have the imitation not that plastic plants are bad. I'm looking at three of them here in our church. We've bought plastic plants. But they're quick fixes. If we really want to produce love, we've got to understand that it's more like a garden where you, 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 you commit long-term. You commit not just a day to gardening, but repeated gardening over the span of months, even years. And he was told to do that because he needed to remain there and he needed to charge. He needed to teach. He needed to tell people to stop. He needed to promote what is true. Stay and teach, Timothy. And friends, if you want to serve Jesus Christ and you want to have a fruitful ministry, think of this equation. Ministry equals truth and love over time. Ministry the production of love in the hearts of people, helping them love God better, helping them love, love each other better. It's speaking truth. It's charging. It's correcting. It's, it's speaking the truth in love over time. It almost never happens immediately. So the aim of your ministry is you aim to serve is to cultivate love in the hearts of people and don't be discouraged when it takes a long time. It's almost always true that churches that have leaders that just come and go like ships in a harbor, coming in, coming out, are the less healthy for it. It's almost also true from another perspective that when a pastor uh, leaves his church every few years and just kind of goes to the next willing church to have him, it's probably not as fruitful in the long term. Just anecdotally, the most effective and fruitful ministers I know are the people who have been in the same place for decades. And faithfully over time, they remained and they charged. They tarried and they taught. They stayed there. They remained in the place where they felt the Lord had led them. And they repeatedly clarified truth uh, year in, year out, decade in, decade out. And the fruit over the span of decades was more than they ever imagined. And so I want you to think about your own ministry in this way. Your, your own commitments in these ways. So you're called to help renew the minds and the hearts of the people around you. You need to water them like they're a garden with the truth of God's word and God's gospel. You need to let these relationships bask in the sunlight of your prayers. You need to let this garden that you're creating of people whom you're loving and you're bringing up in the Lord and you need to wait. Another application might be Church hopping is probably the most, or probably not the best way for you to have a long-term fruitful ministry, to jump from one place to another. Uh, Mark Dever said that we often overestimate what we can do in the first year of ministry and underestimate what we can do after 30 years of ministry. And so let me ask you this, what if you Taking Paul's cue here as he talks to Timothy about what is needed at Ephesus to remain and to teach, what if you 
committed to the people around you, not for one month or one year, but maybe for a decade? (laughs) What if you were there to sit at their bedside when they were sick in the hospital? What if you were there to weep with them when a family member passed? What if you're there to celebrate their joys, to laugh with them, to hug them in celebration for the good things that God has done in their life? What if you, over the span of years, were a helping hand and a guide to be there for them through the ups and downs? I think at the end of your life, you'd have far more abundant production of fruit than if we made no commitments or we were always endlessly frustrated that things didn't happen as quick as we thought they would. You say, hey, how to bring it full circle? What do we do? What do we do as a church so that we're not the sagging balloon? (laughs) That there's a motivational speech every Sunday to try to get people riled up again. How do we do this so that the love of God is in our hearts? And because that love is so real, it is propelling us to love God and to love our church and to love our neighbors. What do we do? Well, I think Paul gives us the directions here is that we continue to clarify the truth. If at times that means we silence wrong teachings, we will do that. It will mean for sure that we repeatedly present it week in, week out from the pulpit, but in our conversations and in our small groups. And we will pray to God that love will be produced in the hearts of people and that we will commit. We will make commitments to one another. That we will be here for each other. And that if necessary, we will stay. We will be by people's sides. And when the time comes, we may teach not from up front, but in a casual conversation as you remind someone of the truth of Scripture, what God has done for us in Christ. We all have that role to play. And I think if we do that in commitment to the truth of the gospel, year in, year out, decade in, decade out, the Lord will be glorified, and by the power of the Spirit, we will bear much fruit. Let's pray. So, Lord, I, I pray that you would do what I can't do, that no man can do. Not a one of us can produce love in the heart of another person. It is a supernatural work that you must do by your Spirit. And so we ask that you would enable us to make the commitments necessary to prepare ourselves, to commit ourselves so that we would live, that the goal of our ministry would be love. And that we would long for, pray for, work for love being produced in the hearts of people in our lives. Lord, I pray that we would be growing in self-motivated passion for God's glory and for the gospel and that the church would be made more healthy because of it. We pray these things for God's glory, for the exaltation of Jesus Christ, for the 
clarification of the gospel. And in Jesus' name, amen.